Well, good morning. Uh, like David said, my name is Andrew, uh, and I'm the minister to children here at Hope Church. Uh, and I'd invite you to go ahead and turn or tap your way to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be talking about Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan today. So Luke chapter 10. Uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, don't panic. Those words will be up on the screen. And we would also love to gift you a readable English translation of the Bible on your way out if you don't have one. Uh, because this Word's important to us. That's why we preach it. That's why we sing it. That's why we want to gift you one. Now, like I said, I'm, I'm the minister to children here, but in my day job, I am a principal of a local elementary school. So I'm used to talking to people, but the people I'm used to talking to are usually a little bit shorter, <laughs> more squirmish, and they like to shout out random things as you're talking. So I don't think that's going to happen today, but if it does, I'm prepared. I just want you to know. <laughs> Uh, and when I prepared for, for this sermon, uh, Ben was very gracious to help me a lot with it. Uh, so any good parts of it, it's the Holy Spirit and Ben. Uh, so that's good. Um, but as I was preparing, I asked him, I said, well, I teach kids all the time and hope kids and different stuff like this. What if I just told it like I was to tell the story in the bridge in Hope Kids? And I told him that if I were to do that, obviously, you know, we talk about that this is a story about how somebody loved somebody else that, that was shocking that they would have loved them. But if I was going to tell the story in Hope Kids, I would have gotten some volunteers. So maybe I would have had Eduardo that was up here, and he would have played the role uh, of the guy that gets mugged. And he would have started over there in Jerusalem, and he would have been walking all the way to Jericho. And then I'd pick out three of the scariest looking people that I could find in here. So maybe you two, and maybe Rhonda could come up too. And, and they would come. I'd have to make sure that I'd prep them, pretend to beat up Eduardo as he comes through. Uh, they'd go back to their seats, and then we'd get a couple of really pious-looking people. I won't pick those out because that might be offensive, but really pious-looking people. And I'd get someone to act as the priest. And they would see Eduardo on the ground, and they would walk all the way around to get around him. And then someone would come around as the Levite, and they would see Eduardo on the ground, and they would walk all the way to get around him. And then what the kids would fight over is who gets to be the Good Samaritan. So maybe that would get to be Patrick that's helping us in sound in the back. And he would come over and he'd get to pick up Eduardo. He'd put him on a donkey. I said the Samaritan would have been the most fought after one. Really, the kids would have wanted to beat the donkey, if I'm honest with you. But they would have led him up on there. And then taking him all the way to Jericho, we would have talked about how does this story point to Jesus. We would have dismissed for games and for crafts. And most importantly, you would have gotten candy. But Ben told me, uh, no, we can't do that. Apparently, <laughs> apparently, there's a bit of an issue whenever it comes to doing that sort of thing uh, in, in here. You have the issue of the fact that 10 minutes is a little bit short for a sermon, I guess. Uh, that apparently adults don't like to interact as much as kids do. And most importantly, we would have had a mutiny in Hope Kids if we had used the candy in here instead of in there. So you are stuck with a traditional sermon, and that's what I'm going to give you today. And in a traditional sermon, normally it starts with some sort of a main idea. So what I'm hoping that we're able to get out of this today, this teaching from God's Word, is the idea that you can love others because you are loved by God. You can love others because you're loved by God. So if you're in Luke 10, if not, words are up on the screen. Let's go ahead and begin in verse 25 uh, in Luke chapter 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when we start with that question, 
it's really not that bad of a question. Like, that's a pretty good question. It's a question that people have asked all throughout Scripture. You have the story of, uh, of Paul and one of his missionary buddies that are, are captured and they're thrown in jail and they worship God and there's an earthquake and the jail cell breaks open and the jailer, the Philippian jailer, is about to kill himself because he thinks, oh my gosh, I just left all these people and they're going to leave and they're going to be free and this will be the end of my life. And Paul stops him and he says, the, the jailer says to him, what must I do to be saved? Same question, right? We also have, after uh, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, the first ever uh, really sermon of the Christian church, where he's preaching to this large crowd of people, and at the end, they're cut to the heart, and they say, what must I do to be saved? And if you're in here today, if you're in a church service, you've probably asked something similar to that question before. What does it take to get to heaven? What, what do I have to do to be saved? So it's a pretty, pretty good question on the surface, but... Luke lets us know, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of the thoughts of this lawyer, what was behind it. It said that the lawyer was putting him to the test. This is a gotcha question, basically. And we're probably most familiar with gotcha questions from the kind of political season that we're in right now. There's a presidential election that's coming up. I know, I'm one of the weird ones. I really like politics. I think it's fun to follow. I love to see the debates. I love this time around watching the Republican primary debates, last time around the Democratic primary debates, because all anybody's really trying to do in any of those debates is to just not say something so stupid that it completely de derails their entire campaign. Maybe that's changed in the last decade, who can say? But you're trying to say something, not say something so stupid that it derails your campaign. There was a guy that ran for president a little while ago that he was really gung-ho on the fact that he wanted to get rid of three departments of the federal government. He named the first two flawlessly. And then he forgot the name of the third. And if you want to get rid of a federal department, you should probably at least remember the name. End of his campaign, almost immediately. So that's the kind of question that's being peppered at Jesus here. But Jesus has a bit of an advantage. He is God. So he's able to handle it pretty well. Uh, and instead, he responds with a question of his own, as we pick up in verse 26. Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. Now, before we talk about his answer, I'd like to take a moment to consider what Jesus is pointing to here. Jesus, the lawyer, and we at Hope Church all have the same standard for truth. He doesn't ask the lawyer, well, what do you think it takes to get into heaven? He doesn't ask the lawyer, what do your friends, what does the culture say that it takes to get into heaven? He says, what's the word say? What does the Bible say? In this day, it would have been the Old Testament, but what does the Bible say that it takes? When David is up here, when Ben preaches on a normal Sunday, if they say anything that doesn't line up with the Bible, don't believe them, believe the Bible. If Jack or Noah, whenever they're teaching in Hope students, uh, say something that doesn't line up with the Bible, don't believe them, believe the Bible. If me or Luke, who's in there right now with all those kids, is teaching in the bridge and we say something that doesn't line up with the Bible, don't believe us, believe the Bible. It's what we have staked our ministry and our lives on, and we hope to reflect that well. And this lawyer gives a pretty good answer because he's a lawyer and he's a lawyer of the Mosaic law of Old Testament law. So he understands that the Bible is replete with examples of this very command. Love God, love your neighbor. 
If you read through the Bible in a year, like David suggested, you'll see it in many different areas. You'll see it in Deuteronomy, in Leviticus, in Mark, in Matthew, here in Luke, Galatians, Romans, Joshua, 1 Peter, 1 John, all of those different places, there's some version of the command, love God, love others. So the lawyer gives a pretty good answer. In fact, Ben just got done preaching through his series on 1 John. And we see in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 19, that we're told, we love because he, God, first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And meditating on that part specifically, I'll be honest with you, I was a little bit discouraged (laughs) because it's kind of difficult to love people sometimes. Like God is perfect and we don't even do a great job of loving him perfectly. But like people, sometimes they're kind of difficult to love. I'm difficult to love. If you were honest, maybe you would admit that sometimes you could be difficult to love. And even when we have a situation where someone is very lovable, it's still difficult to always do a good job loving them. So for example, I love more than anyone in the entire world, my wife, Sarah. She's awesome. She's my best friend. She is the most lovable person that I could ever possibly imagine. But because of my sinful heart, there are times that I do a terrible job loving her. No greater example of this than when we're both in bed at night and we realize that nobody has let out the dog. Because at that moment, I know that if I love my wife, I would go let out the dog. If I love my wife, I would put her needs above my own needs. But there's nothing inside of me at that moment that wants to get out of bed, walk all the way downstairs, put the leash on the dog, walk outside, let him poop, pick up the poop, go back inside, put the poop in the trash can, go back upstairs, and then get back in bed. I don't want to do that. So our solution, we bought a dog door. So now he can take himself out, and it's all perfectly fine. (laughs) The problem is we have a baby coming in February, and when the baby cries and needs a diaper change, that's not going to work. You can't take the dog door to go relieve yourself. But if I have a difficult time loving the most lovable person that I could possibly think of, which is my wife, how much more difficult is it to love people that we don't know? Like, just think of anybody, somebody that you pass on the road. Maybe you have a great relationship with the person that picks up your garbage on a weekly basis, but maybe you don't. That guy. Think of somebody else, somebody that you don't know very well. It's a lot more difficult to sacrifice for them. Now imagine somebody that you know and they don't love you. (laughs) That's much more difficult to love somebody that definitely does not feel the same way about you. So this standard of loving your neighbor perfectly, well, it's impossible. We can't do it. It's it's literally impossible for us to do uh, in this way. But even more than that, We miss the part where we're also supposed to love God fully. When we're loving God fully, it says that we're supposed to love him with all our heart, our emotions, our will, our deepest convictions, with all our soul, the immaterial part of our being, with our mind, our reason, with our strength, our natural abilities and skills. That is also impossible. Like think of any hero of the faith that you could imagine, Old or New Testament. I'll give you two examples. Daniel's this guy in the Old Testament. There's a tons of stories about him. There's a book named after him in the Old Testament. One of the stories that's very famous is Daniel in the lion's den. So Daniel, he's in this kingdom and the king makes a law that says nobody's allowed to pray to anybody except for that king. So Daniel goes and does what he does every other day. He goes to his room, opens up the window, and he prays to the one true God. 
He then gets taken, thrown into a literal den of lions. And we know that God stopped the mouths of the lions and rescued him and all that kind of stuff from the Old Testament. But at that moment, there was no guarantee that he was not going to be ripped to shreds by lions. Daniel loved God more than his own life. Do you? Do I? In the New Testament, we talked about this guy Peter a little bit earlier. He was one of the apostles. He went around many parts of the world telling people about Jesus. And his reward for that was he was beaten, he was tortured, and he was eventually martyred. He was killed because of his faith in Christ. Peter loved God more than he loved his own life. Do I? Do you? We can see that even these heroes of the faith, for like a moment, they could get close to the kind of love that we're supposed to have for God. But we also know that they were sinful. Daniel was a sinner. Peter was a sinner. We see that in scripture. It's impossible for us to be able to love our neighbor perfectly. It's impossible for us to be able to love God perfectly. But take a second and think of a lower standard. Maybe you're thinking, okay, well, I'm not going to be required to give up my life. Well, probably not. We live in a pretty great country that has a lot of religious freedom, and that's an awesome thing. But think for a moment how anytime that we break God's law, anytime that we sin, we've broken God's law, and we're choosing to love ourselves or our sin more than we love him. How long can you go without a hateful thought? How long can you go without a lustful glance? How long can you go without a gossiping comment or putting yourself at the center of your life instead of God? Can you go an hour, a day, a week, a year, a decade? I can't. I hope somewhere in that example you put yourself and think, okay, yeah, like that's not possible. I cannot live my entire life perfectly. And if I don't live it perfectly, I've fallen short of the standard that's said here. That the lawyer is saying and that Jesus is going to say, yeah, that's the standard. Love God, love your neighbor. But the lawyer in verse 29, it says that the lawyer desiring to justify himself says to Jesus, he asks him a follow-up question, and who is my neighbor? So again, it's a pretty legit question. Like he's asked, what do I have to do to be saved? Jesus says, yes, you're right. Love your neighbor, love God with all your heart. Okay, well, he wants to know how to do that well. Students sometimes get a really bad rep. And if there are some students in here, you can tell your parents later that you agree with this because it's true. Students get a really bad rep among teachers. Teachers get frustrated whenever it's very obvious that students don't actually care what you're teaching them. <laughs> they actually just care what's going to be on the test. And to be honest, who can blame them? <laughs> like, they're going to have a test and they're going to get a grade on that test, and that grade is going to affect parts of their lives. It's going to affect maybe what college they can get into, maybe just if mom and dad aren't going to be upset that they got a bad grade on a test. Like, it makes sense that if you're going to have an assessment that you would know what's going to be on it. Think for yourselves. If you have a job where you have, like, an annual review, you would probably want to know what your boss is going to be reviewing you on if that's something that affects your ability to work there. So when he's asking this question, who is my neighbor? He's really just wanting to know, okay, you said first checkbox is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Done. Got it. Second one, I need some more details. You said I'm supposed to love my neighbor. Well, who's that? Tell me who my neighbor is so that I can love them. Basically trying to say, give me a checklist. I'll check them off, and then we're good. I'm justified before God. 
when he's asking who is my neighbor, what he's really asking is, how do I get to heaven? Because he's saying, okay, these are the things you have to do to get to heaven. So, what do I have to do? Who is my neighbor here? Now, what's interesting from that last verse, it uses the word justify. That word means to judge, regard, or to treat as righteous, worthy of salvation. He's basically saying, like we just mentioned, I want a list. Tell me what's the standard, and I'll show you, and I'll show me, and I'll show everybody else around. I've met whatever that standard is. So he's asking here what I think and what I think scripture teaches us is the wrong question. What he's really asking is what rules, what checklist do I have to keep in order to get into heaven? That's the wrong question for him to be asking. But he's doing it because he wants to justify himself. And again, if we're honest, I think we do the same thing. Maybe you're better than me. Awesome. When I mess up at work, my first response is not to then want to take ownership of it. My first response in my gut is to try to figure out some reason that it wasn't my fault. Maybe it was this other person's fault. Maybe they didn't get me the information I needed. Maybe my plate is too full. Maybe I had a really bad night last night and it was difficult for me to focus. Whatever it is, my first heart reaction is to try to justify myself, to show if there was a standard I didn't meet, this is why, because of X, Y, and Z. But I also do the same thing whenever it comes to my sin. And again, maybe this is you too. When I sin, my first response is not always the heart posture of God, please forgive me. Sometimes it's, okay, well, it was just one time. Or is it really that bad? Other people have done worse. Or is that really a sin? I mean, does the Bible actually say that we cannot do this thing? When we do this, if you're with me on that, we're doing the same thing that the lawyer did. We're trying to justify ourselves against an impossible standard we want to try to find some wiggle room where, okay, well, actually I have fulfilled what it says to do there. Now, Jesus, after he gets this follow-up question, he still doesn't answer it because he's very good at not answering the questions, answering it by not answering it. And he tells a story. And stories are great ways of learning anything. I use stories all the time whenever I teach. You've got stories like the tortoise and the hare that slow and steady wins the race. You have stories like Avengers Endgame and every other Marvel movie afterwards, which apparently teaches us that time travel solves everything. <laughs> you also have the example of me, the best like lesson I've learned when it comes to driving, I drive too fast. I know that's wrong. I'm going to fix it. I promise. My wife tells me all the time I drive too fast. My parents told me I drive too fast. I understand that this is a problem. Okay, moving on. So, one time, I was driving through the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, and my grandma was with me. And my parents had told me many times, hey, slow down. And I didn't really listen. I should have. Children, listen, parents. It's good. Okay, so I wasn't listening. But then one time, I was driving with my grandma, and she was telling me very calmly about the fact that there was a family that had driven on this exact road. And they had driven a little too fast. And they were coming up on the exact turn that I was about to come up on. And they took it too quickly, and they all got in a car crash and they all died. And you wanna know what? I slowed down because that, that story taught me what it was supposed to teach me, that if you continue to do this, bad things can happen. So as I read this chunk, Luke 10, 30 to 35, the actual story of the Good Samaritan, please follow along, but also I want you to think through. In a story, usually we put ourselves in a story. So I want you to think through who am I, who are you in this story? So Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 30, it says, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, also passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed from where, to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So this story starts out as a bit of a downer. You got a guy that's on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho. If this helps you in your mind, it would be like if you were at Solitude in the ski resort and you were to walk here to Salt Mine. It's about 18 miles, about 3,000 plus feet in drop in elevation. Pretty long trip that you're making. And as he's walking, he gets mugged. He gets beaten up. He gets left for dead. All of his stuff taken in an awful, terrible position. And maybe you can think a little bit of what he felt like. Now, I hope that you've not had this physically happen to you. But he felt desperation. And there are lots of ways that you can feel desperation. Maybe it's desperation of the fact that you've had a time in your life when, uh, you know, bills that needed to get paid, you had no idea how they were going to get paid. Maybe it was a time in your life where there was a loved one that had either left or they had passed away and you didn't know how you were going to be able to move on with that. Maybe it was a sin that had come into your life and started to wreck things and you started to see the results of it. And maybe it wasn't in the past, but maybe it's something that's right now. Maybe you're feeling desperation right now. Well, this man, this half-dead man, is the only name that's given to him in Scripture, felt that kind of desperation. But then he had an amazing stroke of luck. There's this priest. Now, we can get all the details of what a priest is, but basically, uber-religious guy. A guy that if anybody was going to help this half-dead man, it should have been a priest. And it must have been an amazing thing that he was walking by. But then he doesn't stop to help him. He just leaves. And scholars have a couple of reasons why they think maybe this was the reason of, of why he wouldn't have helped. Maybe because of ceremonial law, he thought the half-dead man wasn't just half-dead but fully dead. And if he had touched the corpse, then he would have been ceremonially unclean. Maybe it was because he thought that the guy got what he deserved. He was a terrible sinner, and so he wasn't going to help him because he was awful. Or maybe it's this last one that I really identify with. This guy got mugged in that spot. If I stop and help him where he got mugged, I could also get mugged. Maybe I won't help him. Whatever the reason was, it doesn't really matter. The Bible doesn't tell us why he didn't stop. It just tells us that he didn't. And what we get from that is that he did not love this man enough to help him. He had a lack of love towards this man. But then, again, another amazing stroke of luck. You've got a Levite. Again, many things we could talk about with a Levite. But basically, like a priest, a little bit less religious, but still pretty cool. And so he's walking by, and instead of helping... He does exactly what the priest does and walks around him. And when he does that, he's showing that it wasn't just a mean priest that didn't want to stop. It's showing that this is the normal thing, that when people see others in need, human nature is to not help. Human nature is to not love. Human nature is to not be inconvenienced by stopping and helping this person that's there. And then the story takes a pretty familiar turn to us. Even if you've never heard this story before in your life, if, uh, you know, Bible reading is not something that's really on the horizon for you, you have probably heard the phrase Good Samaritan before. Like you talk to anybody, you know a Good Samaritan is somebody that helps somebody else out. So today we think, oh yeah, well the guy's called a Samaritan, he'll be a Good Samaritan, he's going to stop, he's going to help, that's how the story goes. But to the people that were listening to this at the time, it was insane 
that a Samaritan would have helped this half-dead Jewish man. Absolutely insane. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. There's all sorts of things you get back into of how you know, the Samaritans had uh, intermarried with the Assyrians whenever the occupation had come and they had a different temple and they were doing these different religious practices, whatever. What it really means, they hated each other. They had a religious conflict and we know throughout world history that there have been many, many, many times where religious conflicts have turned into wars. So you understand how that could be something that's pretty important. But there was also a racial conflict whenever it came to these things. Imagine for yourself, I used to teach U.S. history, still teach U.S. history. Um, but in, in U.S. history, if you go through the Jim Crow era, or if you go through segregation in the South, and think of the, the types of feelings and hatred among different races of people that would have been felt, you'll get a small taste of how Jews and Samaritans felt about one another. They hated each other. But this Samaritan was moved with compassion. And he did so many things to help out this half-dead man that could do nothing to repay him. He went to him, the exact opposite of what those other two did. He saw him, and then he went to try to help him. He bound up his wounds. It said he used oil that would have soothed his wounds. Wine would have disinfected his wounds. I'm sure if he had that with him on a trip, he probably had another purpose of why he had the oil and the wine. But now he was using it on this guy that he had met along the way. He let the man ride his animal. If he's riding the animal, the Samaritan doesn't get to ride the animal, so he's walking the rest of the way. And then he pays two days' wages for this man at the inn and basically writes a blank check and says, I'll cover whatever other expenses you have afterwards. That's a lot. Those of you that have children, I'm sure that you love your children greatly. Also, would you put your kid in a hotel room and then give a blank check for them to raid the minibar? That would be a terrible idea. You would like get uh, your, your house foreclosed on because you wouldn't be able to afford anything else because the kid would have spent all the money there. But that's what he does for this man who he has never met before. And so then Jesus reframes the wrong question to the right question here. In uh, verse 36, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The wrong question was, what rules do I have to keep to get into heaven? Jesus reframes it to the right question, who deserves to get into heaven? That's basically what he's saying here. He said, you have to be a neighbor. So which of these guys proved to be a neighbor? The right question is, who deserves to be able to get into heaven? And the answer in verse 37, the lawyer said to him, the one who showed him mercy. Now note there, if you didn't believe me about Jews and Samaritans not loving each other, he couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He just said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, now you go and do likewise. Now wait a second. Isn't that the answer that we had at the beginning? Like the lawyer comes to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to be saved? To enter eternal life. He says, I've heard that it's love God, love your neighbor. Jesus said, yep, do that. Then the guy asks another question. Jesus tells this big, long story and then says, love God, love your neighbor. Go and do likewise. It seems like a waste of time. Like, why would you tell the whole story if it's just the answer that is at the beginning? And is Jesus telling us that the way to enter eternal life, the way to get into heaven, is through works? Is through keeping a bunch of rules? Of checking a bunch of boxes? Well, no. If you weren't, uh, you know, if you, if you drifted a little bit earlier uh, whenever we were talking, we, we, we spent a decent amount of time on the fact that to love God perfectly is impossible. And to love your neighbor perfectly is impossible. 
So do you feel a little bit of the desperation that the half-dead man would have felt? Think about that. What does it take to get into heaven? It's impossible. That's basically what Jesus is saying right here. He's saying, yeah, you do have to love God with all your heart. Yes, you do have to love your neighbor as yourself. Also, not going to happen. Those things are impossible. But we have good news. And that's what the whole Bible tries to teach us here. And I challenge you to listen along to Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And I want you to see if you can catch any of the parallels between that and the story that we just read. Ephesians 2, verse 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Did you see the parallel? The half-dead man was half-dead. We're fully dead in our sins, in our trespasses. Because of our sin, we are spiritually dead and separated from God. Much more hopeless than that half-dead man. And then did you see? It said, but God saves us. If we went back to Luke chapter 10, you would see the same phraseology there. But a Samaritan. And then that Samaritan helped the half-dead man. When we read this story, we like to put ourselves in, in scripture in, in the hero spot. So whenever we read the story of David and Goliath, we think, oh, we're David and we're killing those giants. Cool. No, <laughs> Jesus is David. He's the one that kills the giants for us. In this story, we want to be the Samaritan. We're not. We don't want to be the Levite or the priest. They were super judgy, and we don't want to be a part of that. But honestly, sometimes we are. We think that we've done enough in ourselves that we kind of look down at other people that might be struggling, and we think that we're able to justify ourselves, that we've checked those boxes. And too often, we, we act like that. Who we really are in this story and who the lawyer was in this story we're the half-dead man, but we're not half-dead. We're fully dead without Jesus. So the wrong question was, what rules do I have to keep it to get into heaven? The right question was, who deserves to get into heaven? And then here's the right answer. The right answer is, who deserves to get into heaven? Jesus, who loved you enough to pay your way to get into heaven. So yeah, you have to hear the bad news. What does it take to get into heaven? You have to be perfect. And guess what? You can't do it. It's impossible. But only because we hear the bad news, we can get the good news. Is that Jesus loved you so much that he paid that price so that you could be with him for forever. Romans 6 and Romans 10 tell us here, Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The punishment for our sin is death, is separation from God for forever, forever. But Jesus loved us so much that he took that punishment. He paid that price so that we could be with him for forever. And Romans 10, 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's not this big, long list of things that you must do to atone for your sin. There's not, okay, you have to help out 100 people, just like the half-dead man, and then God will accept you. It's not, you, giving to Lottie Moon is great, but it's not give to Lottie Moon and then God will accept you because you've given something to this Christmas offering. What it means is that anybody that confesses that they're a sinner, 
and asks Jesus to save them, he will do it. And that's awesome. <laughs> that's why we're here on a Sunday. That's why we sing these songs. That's why we, we are able to have hope in this life because this life is broken, like David said. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. But we have hope in this because Jesus loved us so much that we could be with him forever. So if you're here today and you don't know that Jesus, I encourage you, ask questions. If you're here and this is something that you're not familiar with or you're very familiar with, but you know that you've not put your, your faith and trust in Christ, I'd love to answer questions. David would love to. Ben, whenever he's back from out of town. There are many people in this room that would love to answer any questions that you have. But also don't hide behind questions. The lawyer kind of hid behind questions. He wasn't 100% honest in the way that he was asking questions. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. So if you know the gospel and it's really just come to a decision point, do you believe? Don't put it off. Scripture says to repent and believe, and I encourage you to do so. I did, and it's made all the difference in the world. And for those that do have a faith in Christ today, that you're a believer in Jesus, and, and, and you're trying to see, okay, what can I take out of this? Well, real quickly, follow in uh, Ephesians 2, the rest of that passage we read earlier, Ephesians 2, 6 through 10. Uh, here's the rest of it. That he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want you for a moment to imagine the half-dead man's response three months later. Like, think of the fact that he was left for dead, he was saved, and then he lives the rest of his life. If that had been you, don't you think that would have changed you a little bit? Don't you think that that would have welled up some sort of love in you to then go share that love with other people? I hope so. I hope it does that for me. And we've been saved of such a greater desperation than the half-dead man was. So Christian, in here, if you believe in Jesus, I challenge you with this. You can't help people unless you look for their needs. You have to get to know people in order to know what they need to be helped, to be loved. So do that. Get to know your, your actual neighbors of like the people that live next door, knowing that everyone is your neighbor because of the story. But get to know your coworkers. Get to know anybody that's possibly in your life. Ask them questions. See what makes them tick. See what's making them hurt. And then find ways to fill those holes. Maybe it's, you know, bringing them a meal. Maybe it's inviting them over for a meal. Maybe it's watching their kids. Maybe it's helping them with some yard work. Maybe they just need somebody to talk to because they don't have a person in their life that's willing to do that for them. I challenge you to do that. And then go beyond that. The biggest need that any of us has is that we're sinners and we deserve eternal separation from God in a place called hell. And that it's impossible for us to be able to meet the standard of what it takes to get into heaven. And we need Jesus. So tell them what Jesus has done for you. And then tell them what Jesus can do for them. That's how we really show love. You are loved by God so you can love others. And with that, I say to those, especially those that are Christians. Please now go and do likewise. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the chance that we get to, to be here. I thank you that your word does not return uh, void and that you are able to speak uh, despite any vessel that you might choose to use. Uh, Father, I ask for those that are in here that, that do not know you, they would come to that realization that they would feel the desperation of if there is a God and if he is holy and if their sin is real, that they need a savior and that they would accept him. Father, I ask that you be with those that do believe in Jesus in here, that they would have a desire not just to love people in general, but to find specific people that they can help today, and that they would show them love through action, and that they would also show them love through evangelism. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.